0: Good morning. I'm Katherine Richard, filling in for Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. We're so glad you could join us today. Children and teenagers who have a parent in jail are more likely to have poor mental health, substance abuse issues, and poor academics. This is the second most common adversity children and teenagers face in Minnesota. And that's according to the 2022 Minnesota Student Survey. It's an anonymous statewide survey that happens every three years and it's been going on since 1989. Nearly one in five teenagers in greater Minnesota reported having at least one parent or guardian who is in jail or prison currently or in the past. Our state is doing a pilot program right now where incarcerated parents can have video visits with their family. The state also offers parenting education programs inside and outside of jail. And in Rochester, one school is taking a new approach to helping kids with jailed parents. We'll hear more about that later this hour. And it's all in an effort to help improve the mental health of kids who have parents who are currently incarcerated. And we want to hear from you. Are you someone who had a guardian who was incarcerated? How did that affect your life? Or do you share children with someone who is or has been in jail? The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. You can also join our conversation on Twitter. You can find me at Cat Richard. That's C-A-T-R-I-C-H-E-R-T. We're going to bring in our guests now. First, we have Dawn Beck. She is in the studio with me here in Rochester. She's a public health leader with more than 20 years working in local government. She was six years old when her father was arrested and incarcerated in Minnesota. And she's advocated for children and families impacted by incarceration. Thanks for being with us, Dawn. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We also have Rebecca Schlafer. She joins us remotely. She's an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota. She has a Ph.D. in child psychology and a master's of public health in maternal and child health. And much of her research is about the developmental outcomes of children with parents in prison. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rebecca, when you hear the statistics that I brought up in the introduction that having an incarcerated parent is among the most commonly reported childhood adversities in Minnesota, what do you make of that statistic?
1: Yeah, well, it surprised my colleagues and I back in 2013 when this was the first time that our state had asked questions about parental incarceration. So in 2013, when, we, um, when the Departments of Health and Education added this item to the Minnesota Student Survey, we thought this was going to be the first time that our state would really have good estimates of the number of children that were impacted. And I will tell you back then, now a decade ago, I was absolutely stunned the first time that we um, uncovered this. I actually remember running out to my colleague's desk and said, I must have done something wrong. It can't be this high. And every three years as we've uh, administered the Minnesota Student Survey in this state, um, we have seen the same pattern. And I think what we make of this is really 50 years of mass incarceration in this country, where we have seen policies change, um, where we have worked uh, as a system, as a country, to lock more and more people up without a recognition that most of the people who are behind bars are parents with minor children.
0: So, Don, when you hear those statistics, what do you make of them? As someone who sort of lived through
2: this. I feel that in my gut, Catherine. Um because it was 50 years ago that that happened in my family. And to recognize that there haven't been many strides, 50 years is a lot of time to make progress. But it's just at this point right now that we're starting to recognize the issue and make it a topic of conversation. We don't know who these kids are. They're invisible. They don't talk about it. Um, we need to do better.
0: So, Rebecca, you study this issue, and I'm wondering, you know, what do you see in terms of the impact on kids, particularly around mental health issues? How does this sort of cascade out for children who have a parent or um, guardian who's in prison?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question. I think that we see, you know, a number of adverse impacts that children and youth can experience when a parent is incarcerated. So on average, kids with incarcerated parents um, fare worse than their peers in terms of their mental health, uh, outcomes like anxiety and depression, as well as um, when you think about sort of a a set of externalizing behaviors, they're more likely to be aggressive and act out and get in physical fights. They struggle, they, um, struggle with mental health in terms of substance use and abuse. So they're more likely to report Um, using substances earlier than their peers and having problems with substance use um, at very young ages, too. And I think that's what's particularly um, worrisome to me when we think about the intersections of mental health and substance use and sort of what is also driving incarceration in this country. Um, When we see very high rates of early initiation of substance use in in young people with incarcerated parents, I have real worries about intergenerational patterns of of criminal um, justice involvement.
0: So we want our audience to join our conversation. The phone lines are open. Are you someone who has a guardian who was or is incarcerated? How has this affected your life? And what about those teachers out there? Are you seeing this issue crop up among your students? And how are you trying to help them? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. You can always join our conversation on Twitter as well. You can find me at catrichert That's C A T. R I C H E R T. We already have a caller on the line, Tony in Rochester. Tony, what's been your experience with this?
3: Yeah, thank you for covering this issue. Um, I have a daughter that has struggled with mental health and chemical dependency issues. Um, she's in her 30s now, but she has had three children, and I became guardian or helped in the caregiving for my grandkids while she was in and out of jails or prison. And I think that that's an issue that isn't talked about is the family members that are stepping in to raise the kids and not getting the supportive services that they need. Um, I've got um, grandkids now that are a little older. They're still in, in school, but they've struggled with a lot of those um, mental health issues that you're mentioning of anxiety. Um, one of my granddaughters, I think that she really struggled with bonding with um, the Her grandparents had eventually adopted her. But it's just something that we've got to pay attention to the families and provide those supportive services. And there's a lot of fear of child protection getting involved, and um, that's something that family members may not speak up. But I didn't have the legal ability to make a lot of decisions, but yet I was a caregiver for my grandkids. So thank you for covering this story.
0: Yeah, and thank you. Let me let me ask a follow up question, Tony. I am wondering when your daughter was incarcerated, were you were you able to allow your grandchildren to visit with her in any way? I mean, what did that look like for your family?
3: Yeah. So my it, she had one child at the time, and um, mm. he ended up um, moving in with his his father that didn't have custody of him and it was pretty tense. It was a really brutal uh, court battle over custody, and I had considered trying to adopt him. Um, I didn't. My daughter didn't want him to visit her while she was in Shakopee. Um, she was pregnant at the time. Um, she didn't know when she was taken into custody that she was pregnant, and she was not getting the medical care that she needed in the prison for um, a healthy pregnancy. And so as a family member, I really advocated, contacted a lot of elected officials, and eventually she got an early release so she could come back to Rochester for the medical care that she needed. But, you know, there's a lot of things, struggles that are going on. Um, I don't think my daughter would have wanted her children to visit her. Um, She had been Mm -hmm. uh, committed by the court um, after she had her second child. Uh, She needed to have some really intense mental health uh, treatment. And so, there's a lot of things that are going on in families that aren't visible to the community. And I have to say, my daughter is doing very well now. She's got seven and a half years of sobriety. Um, She has a great relationship with her, um, with her younger daughter that she is raising. And she's trying to repair the relationships with her two older children, but it's just something that there's a lot of hurt and pain in our community.
0: Yeah. So, um, Rebecca, it was just a few weeks ago that you and I were talking about kind of a bookend to the subject we're talking about today, which is um, the trauma that parents may f- may go through when they are incarcerated and lose custody or contact with their uh, or parental rights with their children. So, Rebecca, I'm wondering, when you hear Tony's story, what do you hear there that really resonates with some of the findings that you've discovered through your research?
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Tony, for your call and your willingness to share that story and and what a resource you are to your grandchildren. I just, so much of what Tony shared is the stories that we hear from so many kinship caregivers and grandparents, especially, who are raising their grandchildren. You know, just themes here in terms of, you know, the real strength of families um, in, in stepping into these roles, but also the tremendous gaps in resources for kinship caregivers, especially who may not be receiving financial uh, support for care, caring for their children or their grandchildren or their niece or their nephews, um, a lack of legal authority to do so. So often we see um, parents who are churning in and out of the criminal legal system so they may have short stays in jail, and, and real fear for very good reason of child welfare involvement because families, um, on one hand, right, want and need support, financial support, emotional support, um, but also have good reason to be concerned that child protection will come in and um, disrupt family systems and take kids away forever. And so I think there is so much that Tony shared there That just speaks to the way incarceration has ripple effects across all members of a family system.
0: If you're listening and you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Dawn, I want to go back to you. You were really young when your father was incarcerated. Can you take us back to that time and sort of describe what was going on in your family at the time?
2: Well, you know, I have that six-year-old perspective, and the thing that resonates with me the most is the night in which he was arrested. Um It happened while it, it was in the middle of the night, probably 9 o'clock. I don't know uh, exactly, but I heard a commotion. So I was in an upstairs bedroom, uh, as my sister was too. Um, I heard a commotion. I heard some really loud voices, um and I started crying because I didn't know what was going on. And then my mom came upstairs and said, what's the matter? And I said, I wanted a drink of water because that was my way to get out of my bedroom to go to see what was happening. And so we went down to the kitchen uh, accompanied by a police officer uh, because they had to search my bedroom um, to get a drink of water. And that's where I saw my dad sitting in a kitchen chair with his hands cuffed behind his back, surrounded by police. And um, that's an indelible memory that still viscerally I can feel it. Um, I'll never forget that. And that's that's the most um, thing. The thing that resonates with me most is it, that was traumatic. Um, it probably didn't have to happen that way. Um, the other thing I recall is my mom standing in the doorway to the upstairs bedroom and telling the police that they were not going to take her children mm-hmm. because they were going to take my sister and I away. She was not arrested, so there was no reason why she couldn't. And she was she was an awesome mom. Um, I'm so thankful for her and and how she handled the situation, even though she wasn't very old at the time. Um, I'm a I'm a better person and I'm a healed person because of what she did and stepped in and. Did not allow us to be removed from the home, and that worked back then. I don't, you know, I don't know if that works now. Uh, you know, evidence shows that you need to keep the children with a responsible caregiver, unless it's absolutely not not uh, able to happen.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think I hear in your voice just the the on a very basic level, the trauma of something happening in the middle of the night when you're a kid is scary. You have police come and take your dad away. That's scary and confusing. Um, Your dad is in jail. You know, I can think about a situation where there isn't another parent who is able to take care of the kids going forward. It feels like maybe that uh, saved you some additional trauma down the road because your mom was a stable force in your life.
2: Yeah, there's resiliency factors, right? And I had one in my mother and her family network of support. Mm -hmm. She happened to come from a family where she, 14 brothers and sisters. And so we had a lot of support around us. And most kids don't. Um, A lot of times it's very common, as we've heard in Tony's case, uh, that the grandparents end up having to raise their grandchildren and they don't have the supports that they need or the legal rights that a parent has or the financial support systems that custodial parents have. And so uh, it's, it's a struggle for the entire family. Yeah. So I understand you didn't start talking
0: openly about what happened with your dad until you were in your 40s. And I'm wondering what challenges you faced in talking about it, and what was the turning point for you to be able to talk about it openly?
2: That that uh, That's an interesting question. There, There's a lot to unpack there, but it, it's things that I've unpacked over my life. But even though I was six years old, I was pretty clever at that age. I, I figured out real early on that it's not something you talk about. Because I heard things like, well, my mom said I can't play with you anymore. Um, As I got into middle school and high school, it was, oh, you're from that family. Oh, you're his daughter. Um, Even when I started dating the man who is now my husband, who I've been married to 37 years, uh, a blessing to me, um, I didn't tell him right away because I had hidden it my whole life. It was something I felt ashamed of. It was something that I internalized. Um, it became part of my identity until I matured to the point where I had my own adult identity and was able to separate my identity from being his daughter. How is you your know?
0: How is your relationship with him now? I don't have one with him right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So, Rebecca, I think uh, I heard the word shame a few times hearing mm-hmm. Don talk, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. how often. When you are, you know, talking to people about this, who've lived this experience, how shame factors into all of the other challenges that these kids can face down the road.
1: Right. I think that's such an important piece of this in terms of particularly as it relates to when kids um, may go on to develop uh, issues and challenges with depression and anxiety, right, and why these ideas of shame and stigma, right, in in our community and Even you'll start seeing it now if you look at just um, children's books and television shows, the idea that we have, um, you know, locked up bad people and that people who go to prison and jail are bad, they're bad fathers, they're bad mothers. And I think this perpetuates the shame and stigma, right, that we see this narrative everywhere we go. Um, And as a result, when that is your dad or your mom or your sister, um, it really cuts to the core in terms of... uh, just the shame that one can feel when the whole world thinks that you um, have a bad mom. And really, I think the reframe that we have to do is thinking about um, parents who are really struggling, who end up in our in our criminal legal system, who need support and their kids and their families need support, um, because this idea of sort of perpetuating the shame and stigma is really harming subsequent generations of kids who are impacted by this issue.
2: John, what do you want to add? I just want to add, and this is something that Rebecca has heard me say many times, but I think it's worthy for our audience to understand that having an incarcerated parent is really, right now, a socially unacceptable reason to be separated from your parent. So if your parents are divorced, or if your parent is deployed, or if your parent dies, it's automatic for us to build a community network of support around those kids, but we don't do the same thing for children of incarcerated parents. Right. There's no um
0: there's no acknowledgement of of that type of loss. You know, Rebecca, I, I think that kind of leads me to my next question, which is you know, what do you think could prevent some of that? Like, what are you seeing out there right now that you think could prevent some of the challenges that Don and other kids face when, they're, when their parents um, are taken away to jail?
1: Well, we just simply as a state and as a country have to move upstream. We have to think about what is driving mass incarceration locally yes. um, in local jails and across the state. And that is really Investing earlier in mental health and substance use treatment programs, and helping people get the support they need. You know, this is about stable housing. This is about stable and um, livable wages. If we go all the way, I mean, this is the public health person in me, right? Thinking about how do we back up and move to a place where we can really support families, so that so that moms and dads aren't struggling with mental and chemical health problems that ultimately lead them to a place where they're involved in a criminal legal system and they're separated from their children, right? And so I think there is an answer that is, let's move upstream and stop incarcerating so many people and get them the supports that they need so they don't wind up in the system. And for those who are there in the system now, how do we support children and families to heal in the context of this experience?
0: Our phone lines are open and we want to know, are you someone who's had a guardian who was incarcerated and how that's affected your life? And what about teachers out there? You're on summer break and I'm wondering if you could call in and tell us about how you're seeing these issues crop up among your students. You can reach us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. We're going to go to a news break here in a minute. But before we do that, Rebecca, I'm wondering if there are Any gender differences you see in which parent is incarcerated and how that ultimately affects the children's um, child's mental health?
1: Oh, so that's such a great question. So we know that the majority of people who are in jails and prisons are men, right? So men make up more than 90% of the population of of folks in prisons and jails. But we do know that there are differences between um, parenting status when men and women go to prison or jail. So in Minnesota state prisons, 66% of incarcerated men identify as fathers with minor children, so about two-thirds. When we think about women in prison, we see that 77% of women in prison identify as mothers with minor children. And what we know is that there are different kinds of consequences for when moms versus dads go to prison, you know, and most often it relates to these issues that Dawn and Tony have talked about which is who's stepping in when a parent is incarcerated. And so the biggest difference here is really where we see children go in the context of a mom versus a dad's incarceration. When dads are incarcerated, most often kids are with their other biological parent, in most cases, the biological mother. Um, But when moms are incarcerated, we see children in a lot of different caregiving environments. About a third Mm -hmm. of the time, they're with um, grandparents or other relatives. And we also see that moms have uh, more likely to have had children who have been involved in the child welfare system, in part because, right, the they're being the primary caregivers and having this involvement in, in the justice system ultimately disrupts um, their caregiving relationships, and that can lead to more child welfare involvement. And so it's different, and I think those are some of the key factors we have to consider in terms of what helps kids thrive despite this risk, which is the support of kinship caregivers, as, as Don and Tony have talked about, during these really difficult family transitions and caregiving transitions.
0: And just to follow on with that, Rebecca, do you see any differences in terms of how much a child will be impacted depending on the age at which this happens Younger, older are there are there differences that you find? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think what's hard about the science on that is that so rarely is a parent's incarceration
1: a single point in time, right? So rarely is, um, the, the experiences of a family's contact with the criminal legal system just one point in time when the child is three, and we can compare that to kids who have that one experience when they're mm-hmm. 13. For many of these families, their parent has cycled in and out of the criminal legal system. We do see, though, when we take a step back and look at all of the literature that's been published to date, what we know is that the impacts of parental incarceration seem to um, hit younger kids a little bit harder. And we know that about a third of kids in Minnesota with incarcerated parents are under the age of five. And so when we think about Early disruptions, right? For these infants, Tony talked about her daughter going to prison pregnant and the separation of a mom and their baby, right? And thinking about what that means for the rest of the life course. I think these are really important pieces when we think developmentally about how timing of a parent's incarceration and both the chronicity of it and the, um, the length of that incarceration all start to matter as it also relates to the child's age and developmental capacity.
0: Joining us on the line right now is Jason Schneider. He's a behavior interventionist and special education teacher with Rochester Public Schools. He was part of a pilot program called Joining Forces at John Marshall High School in Rochester for students who have at least one guardian in prison. This program was done in partnership with Olmstead County. Good morning, Jason.
4: Hi, good morning. How's it going, Kat?
0: It's great. I'm so glad you're here. I'm wondering if you could just sort of walk us through what Joining Forces was. It just wrapped up. Tell us a little bit more about this program.
4: Yeah. So it was a program that was actually provided by, was in partnership with Olmstead uh, County. And we kind of worked together with uh, Whitney Hollins and Pamela Brunskill. And they were the ones who actually developed the curriculum Joining Forces. And we kind of, it's a school-based curriculum that kind of was focused on developing social emotional competencies using Castle. Um, which is kind of the guidelines which kind of brings together um, kind of focus on self-management, self-awareness, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible, uh, responsible decision-making for uh, students. And we're just trying to go ahead and focus on trying to help students with um, kind of this pro- uh, situation that's going on with incarcerated parents.
0: So how many students were part of it? And can you tell us a little bit more, you know, about how often did you meet and what did you guys talk about?
4: Yeah, so we met on a uh, weekly basis, um, and we, man, it was just everything that kind of came to fruition was just crazy to hear about. Um, it was just some of the stories that the students kind of had were just really difficult to kind of hear and listen to all the pain that they'd been through and the shame and isolation that they felt it was just really hard to kind of go through. We had about uh, participants, we had about six students that participated. Um, I went around actually trying to advocate for a whole bunch of students because I myself have been affected by an incarcerated parent, and I had to share my story mm-hmm. um, to kind of build, like, kind of a, a commonality to allow students to feel comfortable. And from there, we kind of kind of tried to, I guess, broadcast it out to students and uh, make it kind of um, normalized, essentially. So they felt kind of, more open and honest with how they were feeling. And um, that's kind of how it started.
0: So they didn't feel alone, it sounds like, yeah?
4: No, um, basically they didn't. They were actually working unbelievably together, um, this group of kids. Yeah. They, initially, they I felt like they were a group of like individuals and they came together and now they're a group of, they are so tight and, you know, kind of working together. It's just, it was a beautiful thing to see.
0: I bet that mitigates some of the shame we heard Don talking about earlier. So, you know, this program was chi- trialed at John Marshall. And I'm wondering, you know, what, why this particular high school in Rochester? There are three of them.
4: So, I, you know what? I don't know. Basically, I feel like it was just mm-hmm. gifted me as an opportunity by chance. I mean, Matt Ruzick, our principal, kind of basically called me into his office and he's just like, Hey, I got something for you. I feel like you'd be the perfect person for it. And I'm just like, oh man, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher. Anybody, every teacher hates being called down to the principal's office. So, I took like a deep breath. I'm like, okay, here we go. So he comes in and he basically says, hey, Jason, um, I'd like you to work with students that are struggling with incarcerated parents. And I looked at him and like, dude, like seriously, like, did you know my dad actually was incarcerated? And his jaw dropped. He's like, no, I had no idea. So it was just more like by chance. And I felt like just the stars aligned. And that's kind of what helped me pursue this as kind of an opportunity. Um, and that's kind of how, you know, this kind of worked uh, together. And I, I worked with uh, yeah. Carrie O'Neill at uh, Olmstead County, and we kind of brought this group together.
0: Yeah. So can you share with us a little bit about, without, you know, violating the privacy of the students you worked with, what what have they told you about the program? What have they said worked and and maybe you'd like to change in in a future um, round of doing this?
4: Yeah, so um, basically the students, all the data that we got um, was more anecdotal data because we we only ran it for eight weeks. The program lasted for eight weeks. It was one quarter. Mm. Um, We weren't really able to see any positive or negative correlations between academic data or attendance data. However, what they did say is that they loved it. Um, They wanted to have more about, um, you know, have more relations with other students. And they basically felt better about who they were as people. Um, and they wanted to continue this work. They want to go ahead and start working further, bringing more students in, talking about it, normalizing this. Um, basically, um, it's everything that I could have hoped for out of this whole situation because it was super imperative that um, these kids just felt like they had a voice. They felt like their voice had been taken away from them. And it's just one of those things that, which is great to see all of these kids, these, you know, six kids, to four kids come together and um, just be amazing. So, Can
0: you say more about some of the personal experiences, again, without violating their privacy, you know, some of the trauma that they faced um, that you think is, is maybe more universal than people would expect? You know, Dawn talked earlier about seeing her dad taken away. For a six-year-old, That's that's pretty terrifying, right?
4: Correct, yeah. A lot of the, the stories were talking about uh, drug-related situations. Um, more importantly, it was just, um, there, there was one student that I, I remember like vividly of the of the whole story where um, parents were taken away, and um, it was just constantly trying to work through because this parent was in and out of prison, so it was just like, oh, one day my, my dad was there, and one day my dad wasn't, and then he was back, and then he was gone. And it was just one of those things where it was very traumatic, and... Um, I, I just I can't imagine living their life um the way that they did and how powerful and strong they are is just un remarkable and uh I'm just was really fortunate to actually hear these stories and them being so comfortable with you know with talking to k with me and Carrie it was just outstanding
0: so Jason, you've already mentioned that your own father was incarcerated when you were a child um what more do you want to share about your own story?
4: yeah my story it was it was pretty intense. Um, uh, my dad, um, you know, I was I was 18 years old, so it affected me really bad. My dad, my, my dad was my hero, somebody who I really looked up to, and it felt like my world crashed down when everything went down. Um, and uh, basically, it was in that transition between high school and college. And I went to junior college, but in junior college, and uh, basically, he was taken, or he decided to go out and turn himself in um, for a crime that he committed. And it was... I remember like a specific conversation with him and, you know, he was trying to convince me to go to um, a different college or university to stay closer to home. Um, And my dad, and my dad was just trying to say, you got to stay close to home. You got to do this. And I decided that, you know, I needed to find my own identity. Um, I couldn't keep on living in his shadow and that's kind of what occurred for me.
0: So when you, are working with your students what have you been able to give them that maybe you wish you had when this happened to you
4: so during the time period that my dad had left i had an amazing like right before everything that happened i had an amazing group of friends and then i lost about seven of them now i don't know if it was because Mm -hmm. of my father's incarceration but i literally they just kind of stopped talking to me um And I felt really alone, isolated, shame, very unstable. And, you know, mental health was kind of like not really the best uh, viewed in in our family. And we made a decision to go ahead. And I made a decision to just kind of pick up and go. And I kind of just put everything on my shoulders and just rolled off. But what I wish that I had was somebody to talk to. I wish I had somebody to, to be there for me. And I feel like as though... I did that for those students, my students that I, I worked with in the Joining Forces group. And they felt very comfortable with me. They were working with me. They, they opened up, shared their stories of pain and what they suffered through. And it's just a remarkable experience to kind of be that person for those kids that I didn't have.
0: Jason, stay with us. I just want to remind our audience that our phone lines are open. You can call us in at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Again, we're interested in hearing from people who have had a, a parent or a guardian who's been incarcerated. Maybe you're a teacher in a school district and you see this among your students. How are you navigating that? Or perhaps you're partnered with someone sharing children that you've had to parent alone while your partner is incarcerated. We want to hear from you, 651 227 So Dawn, when you hear about this program um, and you think back to when you were a child, what do you hear um, that maybe you wish you had as a kid or or even in your advocacy work now? How does something like Joining Forces sort of fit into the constellation of supports for children?
2: First of all, thanks, Jason, for the work. And I want to give a shout out to Rochester Public Schools, Matt Ruzik and Lita Casper. Matt is at John Marshall High School and Lita Lita is the Community Schools Coordinator. And I worked with them uh, on this topic when I did work for Olmstead County and they get it. And I'm so glad that they do. Um, The thing that really resonates with me, thank you, Jason, for sharing your story. It is one of isolation. It is one of losing friendships um, for no apparent reason, but we all, we we feel why, we know why. Um, I think the key in what Jason said is one of the resilience factors for childhood trauma, specifically for being a child of incarcerated parents, is to have at least one trusted adult that you can talk to. And that's what our audience needs to recognize. Two things. One, we don't talk about it. So I can almost guarantee that everyone listening today either knows someone or has had an incarcerated parent or knows someone who has, um, but you don't know it because they're not telling you about it, because we don't talk about it. So it's out there. It's more common than you think. So remember that adults that you could be that one trusted adult in that child's life and it can make a huge difference. Jason, you're making a huge difference. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, we need to find ways to continue to destigmatize this. And so kids don't feel like they're in isolation. Um, shout out to Carrie O'Neill. Also, she's a, public health nurse with Olmstead County. She also gets this. I know they're doing some uh, support groups in the elementary school level, and that's exactly where that needs to happen. There's childhood development still happening there. And so I think one of the approaches they take is to uh have groups based on being separated from a parent. So it doesn't have to just be that your parent's incarcerated, but it's uh, maybe your parent's deployed or your parent died. Or there's a lot of reasons why kids get separated from their parents. And it's uh probably helpful to include more than just the incarcerated parent reason because that further stigmatizes it. If that would have been offered in my middle school or high school, I wouldn't have joined it because it would have been it would have labeled me even more.
3: Hmm.
2: Yeah, so we have Mark who is in the
0: East Metro. Mark, I understand that you are a high school teacher. Are you seeing this among your students in class? Mark, are you there? I think we've lost Mark. Um, let's go to Rebecca in Bloomington. Re- Rebecca, are you there in Bloomington? I understand that you have uh, a newly adopted nephew. Um, can you tell us more about your situation? I think we've lost Rebecca. I've, we've lost Rebecca too. I'm gonna uh, go to Kathy, who called in earlier to say that her son was in the criminal justice system and went to drug court as an alternative to prison. Um, she says he had great support and now he's doing great and has a kid. She's hoping our guests, um, could talk a little bit more about some of the alternatives to incarceration. Rebecca, I mean, where is this, where's the system overall moving? Is this becoming more common and do you see it as a a viable alternative?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I really I hope we are. I think we're starting to get there. Right. And thinking about ways in which we can divert people from the criminal legal system on the front end. Right. So thinking about not having people go to jail or prison and that might look like um, a period of probation or drug court and other alternatives to um, keep people out of um, a period of incarceration but we're also seeing um, some really unique programs and policies in our state and across the country on what we call a post-adjudication side so this might be after someone is sentenced um, to a felony conviction where they are going to otherwise have a period of incarceration they could find an alternative or there is an alternative. So I'm thinking particularly here about legislation that was passed last year in Minnesota, which is really the first of its kind in the country called the the healthy start Mm -hmm. act and the healthy start act gives the commissioner of corrections authority to release pregnant and postpartum people from prison into community based alternatives with the goal of preventing the separation of pregnant moms and their babies. And so rather than having moms stay in prison and give birth and be separated from their babies 48 hours later, um, these, this policy allows the commissioner to, to have um, pregnant moms reside in the community in whatever supportive services that they need. So maybe that's residential drug treatment. Maybe it is just a sort of housing. It could very well be with a family member. Um, and, and sort of wrapping services around the pregnant mom to, to give mom and baby a healthy start. And so we see alternatives like this at different stages of criminal legal process, And really important to keep all options on the table and really focus on, again, what's driving people into the criminal legal system and how can we disrupt that flow into the system and really disrupt the collateral consequences for children and whole families.
0: So, Rebecca, we also have this pilot program in Minnesota that's bringing together families through video calls and and also offering parenting education programs within prison. I mean, how important do you see these being in terms of, you know, part of that um, larger system of supports that you just described?
1: Yeah, and this is such an important point. So I think what you're referring to here is these model jail practices. And I think this is where I, I, we have to think about. You know, we so often use the words jail and prison interchangeably and thinking about this large bucket of incarceration. We think about jail as folks who may be they're short term um, or have not yet mm-hmm. been convicted and prison for people who have felony level convictions who will be typically serving more than a year and a day in a Minnesota state correctional facility. But when we think about what are the ways in which we can provide services for folks who are coming in and out of jail, what do they need? And what the parents who are in prison need, sometimes those sort of the menu of services looks a little bit different. The pilot program that you're referring to is really um, focused on working with jails, again, where there's this short, rapid turnover um, to provide some brief parenting education some supportive visits for parents and children to connect parents to reentry services so that when they're released from jail, they can uh, get supports that they need in the community. It's really working with other community based supports like family home visiting or when families are involved with child welfare as well, connecting them. And so that pilot program started with six county jails in Minnesota and just got some funding from the legislature to expand. And I think what's really exciting about that is the idea of working with county jails to identify local solutions that meet the needs of families in their communities this is not intended to be a one-size-fits-all approach it really is working with uh, local county jails collaborating with county partners to figure out the solutions that will work in their communities so that you know you see what's happening in rochester and with Olmstead county jail figuring out what's the right solution for this community and and the school district for example.
0: You can join our conversation. Call 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Are you someone who's had a guardian who was incarcerated? How did that affect your life? Call in. We have Rebecca back on the line, Rebecca in Bloomington. Rebecca, tell us a little bit about your family situation with your nephew. Go ahead.
5: Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Um, I have a nephew who is 10 years old, and he was adopted at about four years old by my sister and my brother-in-law um at the time his mother was not incarcerated but his father had been and would be until uh my nephew was um past 18 and so he had a grandmother in chicago but she had taken in some other um, siblings and and uh or grandchildren i'm uh, sorry um And she was kind of maxed out. And so then um, when my nephew was removed care from his mom, then she ended up um, also being incarcerated about a year and a half ago. And he's just had some, um, rightfully so, some uh, struggles with behavior and um, just processing this. And so I'm also a teacher and I teach in the Minnetonka school district. And I guess I was, I'm just interested to know if there's ways to, um, we don't have anything like what Jason was talking about in Rochester, but I think it could be really helpful even if we just had um, groups for kids who have been separated from a parent for whatever reason, like we were talking about with deployment or or that kind of thing, um, or incarceration as well. Um, So, thinking about the elementary school level and middle school level when they're developing so much, um, just wondering if we have any tips for, for getting those kinds of programs, pilot programs to start. I don't know if Jason's still on the line or not, but. I
0: don't yeah. know that he is, unfortunately, but yeah, I think I'm, Don I'm can
5: speak to that. Don,
0: Oh, Jason know. is here.
4: Yeah. I, didn't know, okay. so I, no, that's I great. didn't know if it was okay for me to talk or not. I was just kind of waiting. Please. To know, so sorry about that.
0: <laughs> Jump on in. Give, give Rebecca some advice and then we'll talk to Don too. Go ahead, Jason.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, first off, uh, Rebecca, just to give you a heads up, like, I mean, what, yeah. what, the thing that I was able to go ahead and do is I, I went to this this pro I mean I came out of nowhere and there's a whole entire curriculum that's already created. Joining forces is, is the curriculum. And we just went okay. ahead and used that as our, our title. So you can use that anytime. Um that is I mean you have to reach out to um I believe the the writers of it, which would be um Whitney Hollins and Pamela Brunskill. And um, they're Mm -hmm. amazing. They gave us a full training, Carrie and I, um, like a whole hour and a half training on like how to go ahead and implement all of the stuff that was occurring. And that's kind of how the curriculum got started. And it was just remarkable. But um, I also wanted to say, hey, Dawn, thank you so much for those positive words. I didn't know. I didn't didn't realize it was a free-flowing conversation. I apologize. So I just want to say thank you for that. I really appreciate it.
0: Jason, I will connect you with Rebecca offline here if you guys want to talk more. Don, yeah. is there anything you'd like to add, just sort of more broadly about what 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 teachers might be thinking about if they wanted to try a support group like this?
2: So here's a couple of things. Um, I would suggest that as a teacher or a concerned citizen in your community, that you connect with your local public health department um, right. because it's very likely that they have a family home visiting type. Uh, program. And one of the things that puts families at risk is having an incarceration impact their family as long as well as a number of other things. Um, So find out what's happening with your local health department. That's a great partner to start with. Uh, The other thing I want to mention is uh, I recognize Dr. Whitney Holland's name. She is the child of an incarcerated parent. She has a PhD, so she developed that curriculum. But the voice of her lived experience is in there too. So I'm I'm sure it's awesome. So we are getting close to our convert.
0: I was just going to say, sorry, Jason, we're getting pretty close to the end of our conversation here. And I just want to go back to Rebecca to find out, you know, you, you follow legislation around this really closely. If you had to pick one or two things right now that you think would really shift the system in the direction where you'd like to see it to go, what would you want the state to take on?
1: Oh, great question. I would love to see more upstream approaches in terms of investment in residential substance use treatment programs so that families aren't separated when moms and dads need substance use treatment programs and more community-based mental health. I know that those are two big upstream things and don't feel directly tied to incarceration, but they are all of what is driving, um, very much what is driving um, the flow of folks into our criminal legal system. So I think we just have to move upstream and more investment in community-based mental health and substance use treatment programs.
0: Don, we've got about 30 seconds left. What would you add to um, what Rebecca just said?
2: I would just echo what Rebecca said. We need to move upstream. It's nice to have family-friendly family visiting spaces in jail, but that's a reactive approach. We need a preventative approach. Thank you, Rebecca, for highlighting that.
0: I really want to thank our guests for being with us today. We've had Dawn Beck. She was six years old when her father was arrested and incarcerated in Minnesota. And she's advocated for children and families affected by incarceration. We've also had Rebecca Schlafer with us from the University of Minnesota. She studies the developmental outcomes of children with parents in prison And Jason Schneider here in Rochester. He's a behavior interventionist and special education teacher with Rochester Public Schools. He's been part of a pilot program called Joining Forces at John Marshall High School. This conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Be safe, everyone. We'll talk to you again tomorrow at 9.